Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome to the Waiting List Podcast. And I'm really so happy to welcome Bennett to the show. I'm, you know, really looking forward to today because... This is the first episode of a new series that we've been thinking of doing for a while. Um, we don't exactly know what we're going to call it right now, but by the time this is out, we should have a title for it. Um, we don't know how long this is going to go on for, but having reached out to some of the audience, it seems that most of you like the deep personal stuff. So that's where we're looking to go with this series. Uh, we really hope you enjoy it. Personally, you know, I couldn't find a better candidate than Bennett to kickstart this series, who is the founder of Heritage Meats in Hong Kong. Because generally, after speaking to him, he's a, a great all-round guy, you know, irrelevant if he actually came onto the podcast, I would want to hang out with this guy. But then to hear his equally amazing story, I just had to, you know, get him onto the pod. So let's get into it. So Bennett, if you could... Could you give us some kind of uh, background as to, you know, where you're from, your heritage, uh, where you grew up and what you do now, just so that the audience have some kind of context? Uh, so I was born in Hong Kong. Uh, my dad is from China. My mom is Korean. And I was part of that, you know, 1997 generation that all left Hong Kong to immigrate in other countries. Um, I went to Australia in Perth. And um, so I went there when I was around 10 years old, I think, and um, pretty much grew up there, um, studied there, worked there, um, I think for about 17 years before I came back to Hong Kong and um, doing what I'm doing now. Um, originally, um, I'm in food importing, uh, basically, and that's a family business. So I took over that from my dad, who was always based in Hong Kong who, while I was in Australia, would come visit us every month or so. Um, and he passed away, so I came back and took this business over that I had little knowledge about. But back then, we did commodities, so your Wagyu, your grain-fed beef, your, basically what everyone eats in the food chain today, just mass-produced stuff. Um, so I did that for a few years and um, didn't like it and uh, went on a different route, and here I am. Okay, so... What was it like, you know, being born in Hong Kong, having that, you know, pretty stable childhood with family all here in Hong Kong, and then 10 years old, getting uprooted and going to Australia and your family kind of being separated because your dad was like permanently based in, in Hong Kong. How did you find that? And also, let's not forget that you have a you know, you've got three cultures there almost. You've got your Chinese culture, you've got your Korean culture, and, and now you've got a new culture to deal with. Three cultures. Yeah. So how did you yeah. find that? And today, what do you identify with the most? I think it's always good, like, to, to be exposed and, 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 and know different cultures. Um, and I think it's very important for kids to travel. I, I honestly believe if I, continue, if I stay in Hong Kong and I never left, um, I don't think I would have the vision or creativity I might have today. Um, okay. So, you know, Hong Kong was okay. I didn't, can't remember much about it. Um, but then Australia was really, really cool. I mean, that was like, you know, 
uh, a brand new culture, um, you know, people of diverse ethnic backgrounds, um, completely different way of thinking things. There was sports. There was the, the nature was different. You know, there is nature. Um, the food scene was different. So, yeah, no, it was good. But even though I, I lived in Australia for for most of my life, um, I still came back to Hong Kong like once a year to see the dad and, and like do school holidays and that kind of thing. So, um, and, as a, as a, and in terms of who I relate to most, which culture, I don't know, um, probably more Aussie. Mm. But I'm, I'm rooted in my Chinese and Korean cultures. Like I was brought up equally on both. Like dad was really good. Like during school holidays, I think the big break was like two months. You spend like two, three weeks in China as a kid. And then um, I think I spent more time in Korea actually knowing the Korean side through, with my mum. And knowing those two cultures were, were, were very, very interesting, how different, how different they were, um, the different foods as well. Um, and also, I think back then, just seeing China before it came, it became something mm. different. Mm. Like uh, my dad's from a rural part of China, um, which is very, very beautiful. Um, and to see Seoul um, before it is very artificial now, um, I think I was very, very lucky to see what those cultures were like and, and what that city was like before, you know, today's world is, is radically different. Mm. Mm. So uh, as you grew up in uh, Oz, right, and you started your career there, you didn't go straight into the meat industry. What were you doing pretty much like after you graduated? Uh, I worked in hospitality. Um, okay. I think that's what most people did. Um, worked in bars, restaurants, um, so I worked in the kitchen, worked in the front of house, worked as a bartender in various places um, while I was going through uni and even after I graduated. And I was just having a bit of fun. Um, when you work in hospitality, it's always, always fun. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, I had to get serious in my life and, and, and I went into banking, which is what I studied in, in, in university. So I did that for about three years um, before um, I had to come back to Hong Kong and, and take over uh, or address my father's situation in the business, uh, right. business. So as you embarking on your professional career, you know, you're unfortunately you lost your brother in an accident, you know, yeah. how did that happen? And how did that impact you at such a young age? You know? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I fully dealt with it yet. I mean, Right. It was tough. We, we just moved out of our parents' home and got our place of our own. Um, right. And this is while we were uni. And, oh, you uh, mean you and your brother got a place of your own? Yeah, we just moved right. out of home. Right. At a mum's, uh, at a parents' home. And um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. It was tough, but at the same time, I was able to get get over it. Like, I'm, I'm the type of person who just moves on. You know, uh, I still think about them, but don't get me wrong, but I just, I don't know, just deal with it and move so on. So you're just able to block it out and just move on? Yeah, like, blocking okay. it out. Yeah. Right. So as you changed from the finance industry and you came back to Hong Kong, what was the incentive to move back to Hong Kong? Um, a number of things. Well, I mean, firstly, my father was six. So I didn't really know what was going on. Um, he kind of like okay. lied to me. He was okay. And I thought something was wrong. And um and I kind of know, kind of knows business a little bit because that's what we grew up. That's that's mm-hmm. all we talk, talked about 
um, you know, his work with chefs and the foods he brings in. He's very, he's, he's a, he loves food. Um, I kind of inside always wanted the door. Right. Um, and kind of like Hong Kong at the time while I was being raised in Australia, because Australia and Hong Kong were completely different places, obviously. And I'm from, I, mm. I, I was raised in Perth, which was mm. a little bit laid back. Compared it's to a bit out of the sticks, Hong isn't it? It's a bit yeah. out of the stick, even for Australia standards. It's yeah. a bit out there, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit behind. It's a bit like that. <laughs> I didn't want to say um, that word, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, so for me, it's like, oh, man, I want to see the world. I want to see right. more things and do more things. And Perth is pretty much dead. Um, yeah. For a, for a you know, 20-something-year-old in your 20s, or even early yeah. 30s. Um, so I thought, as I think, I think I've done my time in Perth. It's time to move on. And... Uh, I didn't know what to expect when I came here to Hong Kong, obviously. Um, um, well, shockingly, I only had like less than a month with him and to figure out what to do. And um, yeah, just took it on head on. And um, there began my new, my new phase of life um, in a city that I know nothing about or knew very little about. And I had no, obviously I had no friends. I leave everything behind in Perth. Yeah. I uh, knew nobody. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was interesting. Do you think you always had this inclination to go into F&B? Because you started in hospitality, which I know you said, like, everybody went into that. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, you actually enjoyed it, right? You thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I'm not sure if you found finance fun. But, you know, did you always have that inclination you wanted to be around F&B, do you think? Yeah. Um, probably not at a young age. It was just the means to get by, right. get the money, you know, to, to afford a, you know, uh, a few beers on the weekend, hang out with the boys. Um, but at the time, I didn't think it was something like it was a career choice. Like, I can't see myself working in a bar on a kitchen for the rest of my life. Like, I couldn't see it as a career choice. So, yeah. I just, you know, banking was the more serious thing. Um, but, like in Australia, anything you do is always fun. Like, there's always booze involved. Um, <laughs> I, I remember in Australia, my first job was like, you know, I made sure that the fridge was stocked with alcohol. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Every Friday, I get the bank card. I go to the wine, the the the, the what do you call it, the wine cellar or the booze shop, and I'll get everyone's orders. And we'll start drinking on a Friday at the bank. Right. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't all dreary. It was quite fun. But um, coming back to Hong Kong, I saw a different side of F and B. You know, um, a bit more. Um, I don't know what's the word. A bit more higher end. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. It's more global, I think. Okay. So you come back so, to Hong Kong, right? And you realize that you've got a month left with your father, right? And then you suddenly, I guess, have this epiphany or this calling that you want to suddenly take over the, like, your father's business, which is an industry you have no experience in, like, even, you know, admittedly what you said, right? And you don't really know Hong Kong. Um, you can't really speak uh, Chinese that well, right? And then you don't really understand the culture. Yeah. What, what was behind that calling? Because I believe at the same time, your father didn't want you to go into it. Yeah. Um, funny enough, originally, because I work in the National Australia Bank and they had a branch in Hong Kong. And I reached out to the people in, in National 
the, the National Australia Bank in Hong Kong when I first came over. And I thought, you know, I didn't, I didn't know my dad was going to pass away so quickly. Like he only had that much left at that, that, uh, that time left. And I thought, you know, I'll, I'll work in the bank and just figure out how Hong Kong works from a business point of view and then take over the family business. But obviously I never got that, that, that opportunity and got stuck straight into it. And um, what, it, what, what compelled me to do it was this, I don't know, it's just, it's a business I found fascinating. I, I love food from, I mean, from, from an early age, I love food. That's what my dad was all about. My mom's Korean, my dad's Chinese. And, you know, we're all pretty serious about food. And, um, and I always found this business somewhat fascinating. Um, how he, used to, he works with chefs to this day. All our family friends, my dad's family friends, they're all retired now, obviously. You know, like, they're all Swiss chefs. Back in the day, all the chefs in, the, in Hong Kong were Swiss. So, and they, all they talk about was back in the day how Hong Kong was just amazing yeah. place to run a hotel and all that kind of stuff. So I thought it was a fascinating thing. But he never, he never wanted me to do it because it's like a really crappy business. Um, obviously, now it's very competitive compared to back then. Um, but I know, I think, like, he worked really hard for it. It was like a shame to throw it all the way. He, he, I mean, he, he built an infrastructure, um, having a warehouse, having a company, having our own trucks and everything like that. It's all set up. I mean, like, for, for anyone to start a business today, it's really difficult. Mm. So I didn't really want to throw it all away. I said, I'll give it a go. Um, the fact that it had strong ties to our family, it meant everything to him, and I thought that, 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 that compelled me to, you know, to, to, to take it over and, and give it a go. Mm. Yes, Jack. Um, I have a few questions. Uh, so uh, can I quickly sum up? First of all, I love listening to your story, but I'm just going to sum it up for, for, for my own sake. Um, you were, you were, you're, you're born to a Korean mom and Chinese dad, but then uh, born in Hong Kong, moved to Australia in an early age, studied hospitality there, and then worked in banking in Australia, right? While your dad worked in Hong Kong and had his own, like kind of like family ran business. So what, um, like, did your dad do in Hong Kong? Like I in F and B, and then because I know you're now in F and B, so are you now uh, carrying over the family business, or are you doing something of your own within the F and B industry? Yeah. So what Dad did was basically he was an importer of food, additional okay. food. food. And sold to like to the food service restaurants, oh. restaurants, hotels, uh, casinos. Okay, um, and we did everything from pastry items to seafood to like oysters, beef, uh, right, ham, chicken. Right. Um, so he basically did that, uh, which I which is classic commodity. It's just all commodity, right? So I did that for a few years, and then after you moved like, back to Hong Kong, yeah. Okay. I didn't know much about food either. I used to think grain-fed beef, prime-grade stuff, and wagyu was the best thing in the world. And, um, mm-hmm. and then I did that, learned about the industry, and didn't like it. And eventually, um, still doing the importing side of things, but doing rare breeds, conservation-based agriculture or regenerative-based agriculture. So, so that's what you're doing now? Yeah, so I shut down that company Okay. Uh, and opened up Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods is my wholesale company. Right. So it's basically what I'm doing at the moment at the shop, but instead of consumers, I'm doing that to the food service. Right. So it's still an importing company, but you focus on like what you said, like rare breeds of um, 
I don't even know, like the jargon of meat and, and other commodities, right? Yeah, like livestock, livestock. Livestock, okay. Yeah, rare breeds are livestock. So naturally, in order to, to bring that in Hong Kong, you have to be an importing anyway. So you'd have a, like infrastructural logistics to bring those animals cool. in. Cool, cool. Uh, can you tell me like what are some of your most popular products that you offer to um, like your customers? For, are your customers still like restaurants, uh, casinos, or is it to, like B two C? Yeah, so my wholesale um, was kind of okay up before um, the protesting, mm. and then now it's kind of like zero. It's like dead, pretty much. Mm. I only sell to one or two places, and it's always challenging to sell these kind of animals or these kind of farms um, to restaurants because you need to change their the way their food concept is. Mm-hmm. The way their menu is, um, how they do their menus has to change. Mm-hmm. So I don't do much wholesale at the moment. Um, mm. But in terms of like my shop, it's hard to say. I think mostly the the pork stuff. My, my pig breeds are quite quite popular because they're very very different. Um, they're radically different um, compared to whatever you get in the market today. Um, and to a certain extent, my beef, maybe. Can you? Okay. I'm not familiar with like the F&B industry, but I watch documentaries of yeah. um, like different foods from different regions on yeah. YouTube when I have time. So I'm quite fascinated by the whole like farming industry and the supply chain. And so like, I don't know, like for one example, like the most recent um, a documentary I watched was actually for school. Um, it's the Spanish, um, the ham, right? Like how the pigs feed on the acorns. And then it's the whole like farming system and, and like different areas of um, the pigs where they eat from like produces a different flavor of the ham right so can you tell us like when you say yeah my farmers are different or like radically different is it their farming techniques that produce different flavors of meat or like what is different about their farming techniques so what's different about farming techniques that we're not focused on uh, our priority is not what the consumers want what what makes tasty food or whatever i think that's we look at things from the ground up, from the land's, uh, land health perspective. Our pro- priority is what's most healthy for that particular piece of land, wherever that farmer is. Mm. Uh, and that's going to be different whether you're in China or, or you know, even whether uh, different regions within China mm. or different regions within England or Australia or, or, or America. Um, every unique, every land, piece of land has unique natural challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Our priority, and actually most of the land today is degraded. So the farmers mm-hmm. that I work with, um, when they take over a piece of land, their, their, their goal is to regenerate it back to health. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to find out which, which farming system, which uh, breed or livestock breed um, or crop variety is most suited mm-hmm. uh, to their particular situation. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, you know, I, I work with the most natural farmers in the world. Pretty much, I mean, my, my thing is like I look for farms that farm with the wild. So they're really passionate about bringing the native flora and fauna that used to exist on that land back um, um, and use those um, what we call ecosystem services that they mm. provide naturally. At the end of the day, food is nature. We tend to forget that. And um, a farm should be a natural, natural reserve, mm-hmm. natural habitat, if we mm-hmm. think about it. 
right? But um, today, farming and wildlife are two separate. Uh, they're seen as two separate um, entities almost. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, because the way food is produced. But with my farms, they're showcasing that um, wildlife, both plants and animals and insects and soil life, are incredibly important to producing really, really healthy food in a very renewable way, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so it all starts with healthy land. If you don't have healthy land, you don't have healthy anything and your land becomes drought prone uh, or prone to floods, um, no fertility, these kind of things, and you might only get like, say, 10 or 15 years out of it before it completely um, no longer productive or in worst case scenario, um, you, uh, what do you call it? It can't, it's not habitable for mm. humans and animals. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's a very different approach to what I do, uh, to, to the way I look at food. In the beginning, I always focused on, like, you know, what's healthy for me, no antibiotics, no whatever. I need to eat this, I need that. But very soon, the more I looked into farming practices or good farming fa- uh, practices, the less you think about the food itself and the more you think about um, uh, what makes a healthy ecosystem. Mm. And naturally, when you when you think when you when you look at farming that way, and your approach to farming is that way, you're going to create the most incredible flavor in food. Yeah, I think you also like respect the raw um, material. No, I shouldn't say material, but like the the animal and the crop themselves too, right? Like, I mean, again, I'm not familiar, but from what you just described it gives me the sense that it's very conservational and when you view farming that way and 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 look at it as an entire ecosystem like you said your focus isn't on food entirely anymore but it's what makes the entire system work more efficiently and more green and but as a result of that you also learn to appreciate just how difficult it is to get that type of quality of meat or crop that you probably are importing from outsides into Hong Kong, because, well, I, I don't know, like I would say the majority of the farming industry is um, kind of depleting natural resources, right? Like you, you look at those videos on Netflix and, and, and photos online, they're not a good place to like for animals or humans to, to, to like live. Um, so, yeah, thank you for, for making me understand that because my understanding before we came onto the podcast was uh, like I listened from what Long said into Chester um, that you you have heritage <clears throat> meats, I think. And then yeah. it's like a butcher shop. And then Long and, and, and Chester told me that like your cuts of meat are really great. I don't know what how you said it, Long, but it's like just... Um, yeah, like really high quality of stuff. But then but then I didn't know that, um, you know, the places that you were importing from also care deeply about the, like the more ecosystems and the whole entire system. My impression was just, okay, yeah, uh, Venom c- carries great quality of meat, but now I know. So thank you for that. No, no worries. I think, because um, this is my first, this butcher shop's my first, um, uh, retail project going direct to consumers. So I've been doing heritage or what I'm doing uh, through wholesale for 10 years now. I've always been behind the scenes. So no one knew about me and 
And uh, it was diff difficult to get exposure awareness when you're trying to get, um, when you're going through restaurants or chefs that don't know much about this. Um, so when people know me mostly now as a butcher, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a butcher. Mm -hmm. I'm good at butchery. My background is farming. My passion is farming practices and to heal land. Um, and everything stems from there. The butchery, the cooking, um, it all stems um, from trying to um, make the farmers that I work with sustainable um, and to make sure that integrity is not compromised. Um, mm, mm. And I always say, like, people look at my butcher shop, they say, oh, it's a butcher shop. I'm like, yeah, okay, but, you know, we, we're not a butcher shop because we want to be a butcher shop. We're a conservation-based project. In order for these animals and farmers to survive, we need to create a demand for it. Otherwise, these animals become extinct, right? Um, therefore, the only way to create a market is to create a market, like a butcher shop or a restaurant or whatever, on, on the other side of the food chain. Um, and so these farmers, uh, which over the 10 years, I've helped a lot of farmers keep raising their breeds, do you know what I mean? Not giving up um, and trying to bring awareness to people that these are the type of animals that we should be eating and supporting um, yeah. because yeah. they're tasty or, yes, they're tasty and the most healthiest things for us. But um, from a more point, important point of view is like um, being a conservation project, you know, we, I have a very holistic approach to what, what, I, what I'm doing. Like uh, the food system, first of all, needs to be diversified greatly. Our food system at the moment is very standardized and very uniform. Like only a few breeds, commercialized breeds, feed the world today. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? I mean, your beef, your beef, your beef um, cattle breeds are all Angus pretty much, mm -hmm. right? With a small percentage of Wagyu. And then your dairy cows, all the black and whites, pretty mm -hmm. much. The pig is the big white pig. And the chickens, like there's a few, few commercial strains of that. And that's feeding mm -hmm. the world today compared to, you know, you go back a few hundred years ago, there was thousands of different breeds. Mm. Um, and each breed are very important because they're genetically different, meaning that some are able to survive extreme types of climate, uh, climatic condition. Um, some can survive in different terrains. Some are more resistant to certain diseases than others. So um, if we need to, have, if we need to be sustainable, we need to have biodiversity. That's the first most important thing. Without biodiversity, there's no sustainable anything. So um, biodiversity, if you, should, if you should look at it, really is about um, giving farmers more solutions to what they want to do with their land. So right now, if I want to become a farmer, right, pretty much my only choice is Angus. If I want to raise, I raise beef cattle. And to raise Angus, you need a shed, depending on what country you're, or what, what kind of climate you have to, to keep them. Um, uh, for example, winter, you need to put them in the shed. Um, you need drugs. You need certain type of grasses, right, because they eat a lot, whereas heritage breeds eat less. Do you know what I mean? So my choice is very limited. I'm really forced to be part of this industrial food system. Um, but by having these breeds, these older breeds, and you want to farm sustainably, you have, uh, you have more freedom to choose which tool suits your land the best, which animal breed suits your land the best, if you understand what I'm saying. Do you mean? It almost sounds like, I mean, you briefly mentioned it uh, in your conversation there, but would it be a stretch? I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say this, but I honestly think that with what you are doing and what other shops around the world um, 
similar to what you have in mind, like these people, this very few collective group of people um, are helping farmers that don't want to comply with the traditional um like approach of how feeding the world is like okay yeah i want to also raise angus uh cows i want to raise one or two breeds of pork um a pig or like chickens like you are actually helping breeds to stay relevant in the current world right these old breeds yeah these old heritage breeds yeah which are more um they have a very low ecological cost. In fact, an ecological benefit when you raise them on your land compared to commercial breeds. Commercial breeds only bred a design for a business model, whereas the heritage breeds were bred for survival in nature. Mm. It's two different things. So like going back to the Angus example, if I want to raise Angus, I have to clear my land of the native vegetation, right? Because that's that's not going to feed the Angus. Do you know what I mean? Angus find a lot of it not palatable for these, for these commercial breeds. All right, and you need prolific, prolific growing grasses to feed these kind of animals because they eat a lot. And to grow these kind of grasses, first of all, I lose the diversity in my land, and then the wildlife, and also you're going to have to use like fertilizers and herbicides, all right, mm. to to keep that grass productive because your animal's going to eat a lot of it. Mm. So, um, and our heritage breeds are a lot smaller as well; they eat a lot less, um, but they eat a wide range. A variety of plant life. Um, let's take longer to grow. But what you eat is far more healthier and um, better for the land. And also biodiversity, also like people tend to forget, people think biodiversity is nature, but it's also biodiversity in people. Right now, there's no diversity in farmers. You know, you see those big, big um, cargo, uh, big, big food brands. I mean, they got like maybe, you know, hundreds of different farmers working for them, but they're all doing what they need. Do you know what I mean? So I, I see biodiversity in farmers very, very important. It's biodiversity in farmers important because it's, it means that farmers are able to do what's best for the land. Every, per, every person's different. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, it's liberation. It's freedom to do what you, what's best for that family, especially when you're a real family farmer, meaning you live on the land, all right? Not like you're buying land and you're hiring people to work it. You're actually calling it a way of life and you're living on that land. Do you know what I mean? You really have no freedom today, right, to do what you want, to live the, a life with nature the way you want it. You're forced to do, um, to use certain breeds, certain feeds, certain drugs, and be forced to pay a certain price, to sell at a certain price. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that's that, that liberal aspect, the freedom aspect. If you think about it, right, if you, everyone's different, you know, um, it's like you living in an apartment block with, if you live, it's like everyone living in an apartment block. You, you're telling everybody in that apartment block that that furniture has to be the same. What they, everyone has to eat is the same. What they watch on TV has to be the same. It's similar to that. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I mean, biodiversity in farmers is really, really incredible, important as well. People hmm. need to learn more about this. Like just I listening to something because I'm like so, dying. Like, yeah, okay. you, you say, know yeah. why this is confusing. I'll tell you where the gap is. Okay. So one for people listening, you got to read this book by Michael Pollan. He's like a food writer and it's called Omnivorous Dilemma. And then obviously a lot of people won't read it because they find it dry. Right. 
So go and so Natalie Portman just made a documentary called Eating Animals. I'll tell you what's confusing because I can hear from the question you're asking Bennett that you're not understanding whether we're talking about animals or we're talking about farming, right? Or, or the or the crops or like the field, right? I okay, correct me if I'm wrong. The point here isn't not to eat animals. You should eat animals. That's just the way life is. There's a cycle, but it's about respecting that there needs to be a balance and the priority is learning how to sustain the field. And like, like Bennett said, to keep it healthy, but you know, what's confusing is as a normal consumer, there's nothing out there that explains like the so-called dilemma that these farmers have. Yeah. So they educate people by actually showing what's happening when you inherit a farm, your second generation, you inherit a farm and your dad has been running it a certain way and you're stuck in this dilemma of how do I make money? So you're going to think, okay, to make money, I need to sell by quantity. Say you're just selling grains, right? You're like, okay, I need to sell a lot of grains. Then where do I buy seeds? Where do I get seeds? The cheapest seeds to fix my already uh, effed up farm, like yeah, depleted farm. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I think, so going back to, what I said, which was as a consumer, you go into say Whole Foods, right? Our, our main concern is, oh shit, should I eat meat? That's the first question. So you're like, that's not eat meat. That's bad. But we actually don't know why, right? Or we end up paying for overpriced um, chicken or whole range eggs, right? Thinking, okay, that's the best I can do for the environment. But actually we're not fixing the problem. So there's, there's so many things I want to say. The other thing is, even if Bennett is pushing for this, right? Um, all the big companies, like he said, the ones with the names and the trucks and everything, they obviously have picked this up. They know what the problem is, but they can just come in and do some marketing gimmick. And it goes back to the same thing. Like nothing is being changed because it just takes so much time and it's so labor intensive to farm this way. So I actually don't... I like it's frustrating because I don't know how I can help. I don't see how me just as a consumer buying from Bennett can help. And then people keep mixing up the whole being vegan, not eating meat mm. and the farming thing where I think it's it's two totally different things, you know. Um, and then what I think can clarify a lot for people listening is, OK, so one let's just say you have a cow. I don't know what the cow, the cow names are called, the breeds, mm, right? Mm, but yeah. say one of the heritage meats, how many people can one cow feed? Mm. So my, so that's the first question. How many can one cow feed? And if we're talking about dairy, which we all consume and we like can't live without, mm-hmm. how much dairy can one cow produce? And how many years can I keep this cow alive? And what 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 are the costs of keeping that cow alive? Are you okay? Are you saying that like the, comparing the, you know how Bennett raised? Okay, if you look at what people in the world are eating, it's like the cow is like mainly Angus, the chicken is mainly whatever breed, and the pork. So, are you trying to compare? Okay, say the heritage uh, breed versus the standard commercialized breed how much how many people can one cow 
feed yeah. versus uh, the heritage breed versus the commercialized breed. Yeah. Mm. So, because I mean, in general, like as a consumer, we only see meat like, like, like I don't know, cut like two hundred grams to like five hundred grams, like packaged yeah. like this, right? So, like, even if you ask me now, I don't even know how how many pieces of that comes from one commercial like Angus cow. I would assume it's less because do you, then it said, okay, there's no drugs. There's no like these things that, that go into the more traditional breeds, right? Whereas the commercialized commodities and animals, they're using drugs to, I mean, just look at what chickens, right? They're using drugs to make it look like more fat and whatever. So I would assume it's less. And I mean, I don't know. I'm not, what do you think? Okay. Okay. Actually, can I just ask one first question, which is if you know that your family business is run this way and it makes, it makes money to sustain you just sustain. Okay. We're not talking about like, whatever you're trying to grow it. You're just happy. You, you're you like, okay, I understand how this business works. What is that thing that made you go? Let me just change the whole business plan. Like, let me just run it differently. Well, what I was doing wasn't, um, it was not joyful. And in terms of when you know what's happening to the animals. So I visit, I, I visit everybody, even when I was doing um, commodities on mass produced meats. And, and like, I was too small to compete with the big players. Like you, in this, in this game, you have to, you have to like buy container loads to get a very good competitive price. We're talking about uh, restaurants and even, I'm talking about hotels, five-star hotels here in Hong Kong. I won't name names and anything like that, but they would switch if someone was like $2 a kilo cheaper or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's that constant game. Like it depends on whoever's got the most money to spend on massive volumes to keep the price down sort of thing. Um, that didn't make sense to me. And the fact that there's only a few brands or meat traders around the world today mm-hmm. that you can, yeah. that's exporting. You have a choice if I want to import meat. And they have like 10 importers in Hong Kong already maybe, you know. They're selling to 10 different people in Hong Kong and those 10 different people, again, selling to other people that everyone's selling essentially the same stuff. Um, so I, I just decided, like, I'm done with that. There's no loyalty in the game. It was not joyful. I wasn't mm-hmm. big enough to compete. And that's what made me stop. And I didn't know what I was going to do afterwards, to be honest. Um, but I, I think this is, it's destiny when, when – and I was, I was economically sustainable back in the day, you know, because yeah. um, – but then I decided to give it up. I just, like, had enough of it. And when I, when I decide to do something, I go cold turkey straight or I go extreme. I didn't phase it out. I just went, okay, I'm dropping everything. I go, okay, I've got nothing left to sell now. And that's when immediately, I don't know, this lady came out of nowhere and she sells organic. She said, she reached out to me because she's Australian. She heard I was Australian. And I don't know why that makes sense, but um, she said, I've got Australian organic beef. Would you be interested? And I said, oh, that's interesting. This is like going back 10 years ago when organic was kind of like, new and um and i always i was always been into my health and um even when i was doing commodity i was trying to get grass fed no antibiotics no that kind of stuff in and i thought organic was interesting and then um she flew me over to where she does where, where a farm was and i can't really call it a farm and what i saw there changed the way i looked at farming i mean we're talking about a wilderness region that I don't know how many millions of hectares it was. It was, it, was, it was a very vast region of wilderness that's never been civilized or plowed before. 
Um, and we had to go on planes to look for cattle. And that's when I began understanding the conservation side of things. So I like, I like wildlife. I love nature. And um, the ability to see something unique in Australia that I haven't seen before um, appealed to me. And from then on, I did a lot of research in terms of farmers farming with the wild around the world. And there's so many different approaches, so many different relationships. And I flew to see them and see what's possible. And then just from then on, um, led me to, to, to where I am today, basically. Okay. And then, um, okay, so that's my first question. So this is why you moved into this. So then why did you not, but this is just my opinion, right? because your main goal is to educate the farmers to help them with the land, right? So why didn't you think, let me not run the shop front, but become someone like a consultant and just fly around teaching the farmers how to do this? I wasn't, I wasn't, I'm not an expert in farming. I wasn't a consultant in farming. I'm not a consultant in farming. Okay. I know by meeting various farmers that are doing amazing things, revolutionary things with animals and land that um, I know what to look for. And um, I was based in Hong Kong anyway. I can't leave what I have here. I had staff in place and whatnot. Um, and what I saw, what I saw, I thought it was worthwhile, incredibly worthwhile to the people of Hong Kong to know about and to the food industry, which I was very embedded in. Um, I work, you know, my whole, all my friends are chefs. You know, I'm in this industry. I don't really socialize with anyone outside the industry because there's nothing, you know, I'm, I, I've got no interest talking about anything else really. Mm-hmm. And, um, I thought this is what Hong Kong, the food scene in Hong Kong needs. Um, and it's, it's not heard of anywhere in the world, although it's slowly becoming popular mm-hmm. um, in major cities, but outside of Hong Kong. So uh, for the last 10 years, it was just my passion um, to help these farmers. Because ultimately, a lot of farmers, these farmers are struggling financially mm-hmm. because people are not willing to pay the price, the correct price, the most honest price for producing food the right way, the honest way. And secondly, there's no education awareness about these farming practices. And it's not as easy as like, okay, we can substitute this industrial meat with this kind of meat. Mm-hmm. Our tastes and our, the way we eat meat today, the way we think about meat today has become so industrialized. It's no longer compatible with natural farming. So my challenge, and still is the challenge, is changing people's way of eating animals and how they, what, what they expect from animals. For example, Everyone wants marbling and tender meat. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen from a cattle that's actually living a proper life at eating a grass diet. Mm-hmm. People don't like flavor. People, a common thing that people come to my shop, they say gamey. All right. Mm-hmm. Natural animals have natural flavor. Mm-hmm. That's nature. And nutrition is what gives flavor. So, what you're actually tasting is nutrition. But gaming has become like a, an option, like an optional abstract type uh, experience with meats. Do you know what I mean? So, and people only want to eat one cup. Um, people don't want to eat awful. I mean, think, there's a lot of things. Or people like my, my pigs, they're fatty. Pigs naturally have fat. Um, if they live outside, especially in cold regions, they need fat to keep them warm and whatnot. But then we've been told that fat's bad for us. And then they don't like, they, they probably won't like my pork because it's too fatty. So there's a lot of challenges that, that needs to be overcome. Um, and what I, I think is on my website, I call it re-education of tastes. Mm-hmm. I have to re-educate people what natural food truly tastes like and how it comes from the farm. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So we're going to start, we, 
we got to stop listening to what celebrities mm-hmm. are promoting, what governments are promoting, what scientists are promoting, organizations are promoting. We got to start listening to individual farmers. And, um, and I thought a lot about this. How do I make this work? Because at the end of the day, they need a market to survive. How do I create a market? Education. Education mm-hmm. is the key. You look at my website. Mm-hmm. You won't see, click a link to, there's no cart mm-hmm. to buy me. Yeah, um, it's not pushing you to buy. It's education. Like this is what we do. This is what I need you to know so you can understand before you come to a place. Because with education, once I tell you a little bit, a little bit about farming practices, or uh, help you um, tell you what the right questions you should be asking, um, then the farmers that I work with have a chance. Because the more educated consumers are, the better that they can make a choice. Because I understand that consumers, like you said earlier, are bombarded with you know, different opinions, like don't eat fat, don't eat meat, eat more vegetables. Yeah. But if, you, if we start teaching people what good agriculture is all about, which essentially comes down to soil, right? And it also involves people doing a little bit on their part to do research themselves. If you just want those consumers said, no, I'm just going to, like, it's not my job, you know, just give me a label or, you know, I'm just going to listen to whoever tells me and I'm going to that, that You know, those persons are not for us. They're never going to make change. But if you're really, really passionate or concerned about your individual health and what's best for the planet, you, you, you have to do some background work yourself. Not to the degree that I've done it. I've done a lot of work. And to this day, I'm giving you my opinion back yeah. with what I can show you. Yeah. I, I'm a big believer. I don't believe in charts or whatever. I believe like this is what this land looked like before and this is what this land, the exact same land looked like 10 years later by putting animals on it. Okay? And... Um, and what that and what that farmer's able to achieve with that land now, with the way he's farming it, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can take it and Google and see whether that's you know good or not. Do you know what I mean? Okay, one last really quick question because um, Dan had some kind of F and B background. Me and Jacqueline zero, right? As someone that was supplying me previously to the restaurants, um, what like how do you actually like win an account? Is it just by relationship? Or is it just by cost? When I'm doing commodities? Yeah, when you're doing commodities. How does it oh, work? Oh, man, that was tough. That was tough. I mean, chefs would see 100 people every day selling the same thing. So okay. it came down to cost and relationship. So relationship in terms of like, um, you know, if they can service, service. So, for example, if they need to order, like they call you at midnight uh-huh. like for an urgent order, can you deliver the next day? Okay. Not many people are able to do that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Or can they... They squeeze us. They squeeze a deal with you, and they'll do it for you. But then your that deal is only good until the next person comes in with something cheaper. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was a very, it was a cutthroat business, and it wasn't really uh, that pleasurable. Okay. And it wasn't me. Okay. Well, what about quality? Were people serving the same quality of me because it was the commercialized type of product? Yeah, it's very, very standardized. Very standard. Everyone's selling the same thing. I mean, like. The breeds are all the same. The feed is all the same. The only, the only difference between them was the amount of artificial inputs. Do you know what I mean? So, um, you know, Canadian beef, American beef, you know, grain fed is all the same. It's pretty much the same. So, um, I would say it's pretty much like what Bennett said. Like, like I would say my mom used to pay more because she had a good relationship with the person. 
Mm-hmm. And that would mean like, yeah, you could get certain stuff like the next day, but mainly she'd be like, that's a small business. I want to help them out. But really mm-hmm. the stuff is the same because it is commoditized. Um, sometimes also, I, maybe you'll correct me as well, Bennett, is sometimes a guy would come in and give you a cheap price where potentially he's like making a loss just to get the order, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But then the price would come back up pretty quickly once you changed. So you yeah. constantly like... It depends on the person, right? You can constantly play that game where you are changing your source of um, the the produce just to get that cheaper price. Yeah. Um, if you really care about that, and my mom didn't want to treat people like that, um, and so she was quite loyal to um, her suppliers. I would say, and it would. I remember as a kid, you know. <laughs> used to get the phone calls like on Sunday evening and that would be the order for like the next for that coming week um and it was the same for I mean we're talking about meat but essentially you know the vegetables and everything else is the same um and you'd have like meat people (laughs) delivering like vegetables and stuff it was all it's all like it's not really like clear boundaries I would say Mm. so that's uh, my experience but um when in our previous discussion, you talk about education now, mm-hmm. but you also mentioned that uh, there's a huge disconnect between how chefs work and where the meat comes from, and that chefs have difficulty incorporating um, your type of meat into their menu. Um, I'd like to expand on that. Why is it that difficult? And why is that disconnect? Why is it sh- that chefs don't know? And I think it's rather important since a lot of our the more foodie people, probably the more influential group that dine out and um, stuff, they get a lot of their influences from chefs. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is why I did wholesale, I mean, for a long time, just the hope that um, if I can educate chefs, because they have a voice in, in food culture, they can they can really make this successful. Um, but it never, it, now I know is that they know nothing about farming practices and the way Hong Kong works a lot of the good ones don't have the control that they that they that they uh, that would like um, and that's why I end up going do my own thing but um, if you think about it right um, the reason why there's a big disconnect is because, is because we've become so industrialized as people over the last five or six decades mm-hmm. food system has radically changed it's become so convenient so available so cheap and that's created food systems or sort of food concepts that are based on that type of delivery of food and that quality of food. So it's natural that when I come in with a, with a completely radical farming system, like you're really purveying from an individual family farm um, with a very unique type of breed, small scale, that's dynamic throughout the year. Believe it or not, meat, it's nature, like anything in nature is dynamic throughout mm-hmm. the year. You have a cold, you have a cold season, uh, hot season, dry season, wet season. That impacts the quality of soil and impacts the quality of grass and what the animals eat. Like my butter changes throughout the year. And uh, we used to celebrate that. Um, but now it's, you know, chefs are all about consistency, you know. Um, I like to say I'm consistently natural. <laughs> That's what I tell chefs. Like you... You can't get consistent. Nothing, nothing in nature is consistent. Every year you live on the land, each year, seasonal-wise, it's different. The natural challenges you face in the land is different every year. Mm. Can, and and if you, that's if you want natural meat, so I'm trying to help people understand. 
what natural producing food naturally means. Um, but it's no longer natural. You can bypass all that when you start building a shed and putting animals inside that shed. When you start um, feeding them grains, which is uniform throughout the year, or if you're growing crops, you just build a greenhouse. <laughs> it doesn't matter if there's a wet or cold season. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, mm. So my thing is also like the fact that um, with in terms of animals, everything's mass produced. So you can you can sell only like a small percentage of the animal to the market, like ribeye, strip loin, tenderloin. You know what I mean? Um, but with me, like we we're not mass producing animal uh, family farm. I only process one cow a week or one cow a month or two or three cows a year. All right. And uh, when you're buying directly from a family farm, like you want to cut out the middleman, there's no traders, not that any traders would do this kind of business, but you buy it directly from the farm, real farm to table is you buying the whole animal. So if you want a real farm to table experience, it's not buying from a meat trader or a mass you know, producer or whatever it is, you're buying the whole animal. And not many restaurants here can know how to use or chefs know how to use the whole animal because mm-hmm. um, it means that their menu has to be dynamic, mm-hmm. changing all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, I think you guys dine out quite often and to know that menus don't change that often, right? Um, and this whole thing, signature dish stays on for years. Um, mm-hmm. All that one cut becomes popular, then that never changes. Mm-hmm. But that's not, that's not conducive to the reality of natural farming or family-scale farming. So these are challenges I overcome. And things like also little things, uh, well, not little things, things like our breeds are smaller, um, you know, chefs want big chops, big eyes. That's that's what the consumer wants. Um, things like, um, oh yeah, the pigs are too fatty. Can't use it. People don't want fat. Um, so food has become very abstract and very, yeah, abstract. You know, uh, very personal when um, it's not something that it should be like that. We can't treat I just it come like in. Art. I just like to come in here, like because obviously, you know, market force has a has a you know huge influence on what is available and what we eat. And convenience, unfortunately, is the bane of uh, you know human society. We are you know slaves to convenience, mm-hmm. which is why probably there's so much of this commoditized meat around. But uh, do you find that? increasingly the consumer is getting more knowledgeable and demanding and wanting different um, yeah, different meats and having that selection and realizing, you know, I don't want this stuff. I'm more educated now. And now I want these heritage breeds. Are you finding there's more uptake amongst the public? Because of education, because of education, those that are more open-minded have done some research on their behalf. Like they've actually read some books or saw something uh, whether it's talking to me and doing further mm-hmm. research themselves, they are. Um, but if you're just a person that just want to eat healthy and that's it, that's you're not looking any further than that, uh, you're going to struggle. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, so what I'm saying is like from a consumer, yeah, let's say a lot of this sustainability, biodiversity, uh, yeah, I, I don't know much about. Do you know what? But you know what? I can tell the difference in taste. You know, that's one. And, you know, two, is there an additional health benefit to it? Because 
I'm wondering like, is tough and taste is subjective as well, right? You know, what tastes good for you might not taste good for me. Is that enough for enough uptake of people to go, yeah, you know what? I'm willing to fork out extra. I'm willing to go and search this meat out. Because otherwise you're just relying on people to say like, okay, I'm going to get educated about sustainability. And it's something that most people, which is, they don't see every day. You know what I mean? Most people, when they go out in their day, they don't see, <laughs> some people probably don't even see many trees, right? Yeah. They live in a concrete forest. Yeah. Um, sustainability is just not in the forefront of a lot of people's minds, right? No. But, you know, with, we've seen with organic, you know, that has come in and things have been marketed as organic because there's that extra health benefit, which is like everybody's like onto, right? You know, there's definitely a niche group of people. I'm just thinking if it's just taste, I know you've got all those other factors, but which ones do the consumers actually care about? Um, I'm not sure that taste is number one. Okay. Can I add in another um, factor? Like, can we add in the price factor as well? I was going to say that. I think cost is probably the consumers. I agree. One. I agree. A lot of people are like, I want to be healthy. I want to, oh, but that's too expensive. Like, I, yeah, <laughs> exactly. What do you expect? Like, you know, you need land for chickens to roam free and raise properly on a small scale. Like, you know, like what, like food is absurdly cheap today because of government subsidies and whatnot, you know, and ridiculous um, production, like the, the, the production numbers for chicken alone is just, and pigs, is, is, it's, and like what I tell people about that is that that is not a way of feeding the world because there's no longevity to that. There's no longevity to that. That production, will, that production system will crash soon because it's dependent on a lot of non-renewable inputs. Plus, you're making the population sicker, weaker. You're creating bird flu every year, which has serious consequences, which if you think, you know, look at, look at today with COVID. Do you know what I mean? Uh, uh, what do you call it? Animal, animal virus outbreak is going to happen soon. Again, it ain't going to go away. You know what I mean? And we never learn from it. So, yeah, but price is the number one concern. Um, so, okay, we talk about price then, Bennett. Yeah. Like, what's the price of your cuts? Right? I mean, let's just put it on the table. Uh -huh. yeah. Sorry for the pun. But put it on the table. What's the price of your cut to a, you know, premium cut that you find in the supermarket to a very commoditized cut? Well, uh, I haven't been in supermarkets for a long time, so I know what they're selling at. But say, okay. my, I sell a ribeye rib cut for yeah. $98. Grams. That's Hong Kong dollars, right? Okay. So um, in a supermarket, you probably get maybe, and I'm guessing you, all right, maybe 50, 60. Yeah. Like a yeah. grass fed, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Then, you know, you can pay a little bit more for Wagyu. Yeah. Or, you know, prime grade type beef. Um, I think chicken is probably the more extreme end, right? Because the way chickens produced today is, is really, really um, industrialized. Um, there's a big, my, my chickens, depending on the weight, on average, sell between $300 to $400 a bird, Hong Kong dollars. Right? Wow. So. Are you making enough on that, though? Or are you subsidizing some of that cost? I'm subsidizing on a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, so chicken. if you were wow. actually trying to be more profitable, it wouldn't be that price. It would be more. Yeah, but, you know, you've got to take steps. You've got to take steps. No, no, I no. I understand that. Yeah. When, yeah. when you, this education is going to take time. The more people yeah. know, the more better choices they can make.
and justify why they should be paying. It's like, you know, yeah. Wagyu, right? Wagyu is actually a very cheap, or prime grade beef is a very cheap thing to make, to produce. Grain is cheap, you don't need land, you know, your waste is taken care of, um, but it's marketed really well, right? And charged at extraordinary prices. So I was walking in Central last night with Chester and mm. um, there was this new Canadian butcher shop or whatever it is, not even a butcher shop, it was a very small place, and they were selling Canadian grain-fed beef at $120 mm-hmm. per 100 grams. So more expensive than my rare breeds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I mean, people are willing to pay that much for that because there's justification for it. Can I, can I say something? Because Jacqueline asked about the taste, and obviously I'm not like a chef, so I can't like um, <laughs> describe it like, you know, like chefs or whatever. You're a but big I, consumer though. Yeah, I'm a big, <laughs> like I just love food, okay? And I love dairy so much. Like it's, I can't even explain. So I will go to City Super and try every brand from this side to that side, trying to find like the, like the cheesy. Tell him, <laughs> tell him your beef jerky story. Beef jerky. Oh, yeah. Some- <laughs> it's no, embarrassing. No, no. Don't say it. <laughs> okay. But I can tell you, like, Bennett is, uh, I think you're underplaying the taste. Okay. Even if we're not talking about taste, it's the fact that um, this is the best way I can explain it. When I usually eat yogurt, and I think I, I, I think that I'm buying like the best one I can find in like the high-end supermarkets in Hong Kong, right? I usually feel sleepy and I'm not like, um, I'm not lactose intolerant. I can eat a lot of cheese and everything, um, but I can eat a lot of the cheese at Bennett's place and sit, like still walk away feeling like, okay, at the end of the, uh, the dinner that I had there, I still felt like, okay, I feel light. I don't feel like I need to go home and crash. That's the best way for me to explain it. So I can't drill down to the scientifics and explain what's going on in my body, right? But I just know that um, if we're not talking about taste, just the benefits of eating clean, I can see it. I can really yeah. see it. Yeah. I think that's very important because like, that's also one of the things I tell uh, people is like, forget what people are telling you. Like, I'm t- if I'm telling this healthy, just try it. The proof yeah. isn't how you feel afterwards. Like yeah. people, they eat, they eat my fatty pork and whatnot. And they yeah. couldn't believe how light they feel afterwards. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge advocate of eating like lard, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the right, the right kind of lard, though. You eat yeah. the wrong kind of lard, you <laughs> feel happy and heavy. Okay. Jeez. I think she likes that too as well. Um, <laughs> I wanted to say, like, you know, you're priced at a range where, you know, people, they look at the price of a meat, right? And they think that's a good piece of meat. And they might say some few words on the packaging and that determines their purchase. If you actually put the two meats without any packaging, I don't think many people could tell that's an expensive meat. That's a not so expensive meat. And if your meat is actually that much different and different, I'm just thinking with just on your price, would it be that if you actually mocked it even higher, people then have that clear differentiated point that this is different because now it's getting lost in like, the prime, the wagyu, and everything, and everybody then thinks, "Well, you've actually increased your competition because you've amalgamated it into that that group." I'm not obviously telling you how to do your business, but like I'm one of those consumers, which basically, you know, I'm a shitty consumer like this. I'll look at the most expensive thing, right? So when I go and like even any trainers, any sneakers, any clothing, whatever, 
I'm like, okay, where's the most expensive one? And I filter from expensive down to cheap. And then I'm like, okay, oh, and already there because the prices are so expensive. I'm like, okay, why is this so expensive? And then that actually stimulates me to get more educated into that thing, right? But as you say, now you've got that Canadian guy selling at 120, you're at 98. I'm like, oh, thinking, that guy's gonna that guy's gonna close. That that's. <laughs> I'm just using that as a crazy example. Don't worry about that. I think those guys. Are, I think those guys are just having it for a fun place to hang out. Um, you know, that's like for a shitty piece of meat, they're charging that. That's not gonna last. Um, no, I have thought about that, Daniel. Yeah. Okay. How to market like rare breeds, like you know, make it yeah. like you know, like a real diamond. It's really rare. Yeah. Charge it up. Appeal to only like a small percentage, but that's not food. That's not lean, man. Um, that's fair enough. That doesn't. That doesn't like. I, I, most important thing is I want to show that good food is accessible. It is accessible. Now I'm giving you the price for the most expensive cut. Now you can get a sh- also book it for thirty eight dollars per hundred grams. Oxtail for thirty eight dollars uh, per hundred grams. So you know what I mean. If you learn how to eat the rest of the animals, actually not that bad. It it is somewhat <laughs> affordable. Yeah. Um, but okay, so you just, yeah. Sorry, go. Do you want to finish first? Finish. Yeah, let him finish yeah. first. Yeah, if you just eat the 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 one or two cuts that you know, um, it's expensive. Then it's going to be very very expensive. Like knowing and, and also educating the whole animal, which we try and do in in, in my shop, is that it gives you flexibility. If you don't follow recipes. Recipes is a guideline. You don't have to use this particular cut for this recipe. You can use a variety of cuts, and that's where um, people that come to my shop benefit from it. Jermaine? Yeah, long. Okay, I wanted to say hypothetically, if someone came to you and was like, can I expand your shop, your current shop, right? So instead of sitting like eight people, you sat 20 people per night, which meant that it could help you reach your goal of educating people. You're not, mm. you're not trying to be commercial here. You just want to educate people. Yeah. Because I think there's no way, right, that I would have understood anything without having tasted your food and then seeing the full potential of what you can do with the ingredients. You can sell me this. You can tell me you're not cooking from head to uh, tail, da, 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 but only eating it. I was like, Oh, I get it. You know? (laughs) So would you actually consider expanding? I think everybody's different in how, in what works for them, um, or how they experience heritage needs, um, or what made them realize what I'm doing is really, really different. But yeah, I mean, the whole plan was pre-protest and pre-COVID was mm. to start with a butcher shop. And I felt a butcher shop was very, very important. First, I want to get people out of their homes, out of convenience um, and not send the helpers and give them a reason to actually go out and shop mm. and meet and develop relationships with people like me that mm. are representing farmers to know more about. Obviously, I'm not for everybody. If you just want to sit on the couch, press an app, that's you're not here. Uh, but I think there's enough people in Hong Kong that want to know a little bit more and very interested about the environment and healthy food um, to, to, to get them come to my shop. So, and I've done that. Uh, it's amazing. Like um, the amount of people, cause my, I've always got new things coming in as well. Like the diversity aspect. It's always mm-hmm. something different at HM. People want to discover something different. Like this month we've got different breeds coming in. And again, that brings regular customers in again. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of expanding, yes, my plan was to start with the butcher shop and then um, open other food concepts. Um, that I call the ecosystem um, mm. that support the sustainability of my farmers, like, like supporting the whole animal, number one. So, for example, you know, I want to do like a rare breed burger shop, um, a Chinese rare breed place, 
and, and then a more of a restaurant style um, uh, concept where the whole animal is, is moved throughout those few um, places. Um, that was the plan mm. um, in terms of expanding. It wasn't ever just a butcher shop. And I'm not a butcher to this day. I keep repeating myself. Uh, <laughs> but you don't like one. Obviously, um, <laughs> life had a different plans, uh, <laughs> different plans for me. And um, so, yeah, unfortunately. You, had, um, unfortunately, you actually had that choice, right? Because I actually asked the same question that long ago in our pre-call, right? You had the chance of having it like the restaurant way or this butcher way, right? In the beginning, yeah. Yeah, like, you did have that choice. Right? Yeah. Or butcher, butcher slash take, you know, have a little restaurant element to it. And uh, ultimately chose butchery because um, I found it more of a place that I can educate people than a restaurant. Okay. Because okay. people uh, come in. Yes. But the butcher, <laughs> but the butcher shop, uh, you also cook there. That's where that's where Long ate at, right? Yes, so we 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 do we have a kitchen there, yeah. Okay, I think honestly, it's a lot more like you said, convincing if done that way. Because yeah, sure, you can have a restaurant and you can ask your chef to talk about it. But being inside the butcher shop, you see the animals in their purest forms, and then through knowledge through chemical reactions it transforms into the stuff that's on your plate and then when you eat it it comes full circle i i I agree with you it's more it's a lot more convincing it's like okay there's long she walks in okay i see that cut of meat you can tell me how um how sustainable it is i i can try to understand it and and knowing long like she's very curious to learn right like she, she she will try her best to understand it but then like exactly what she said she didn't completely get it until she got to taste it right there and then and having that meat at the display like fridge or whatever and then having that same cut of meat cooked and transformed and going into her stomach i think it's perfect so i think when you become when you do the restaurant like this is what i was thinking while you guys were having the conversation right because again i've never been to your shop and i was just looking at your website just now but you know you mentioned the burger place you mentioned the chinese um place i'm even thinking you know um with there are so many ghost kitchens like it's the new concept in the food industry right and you have the perfect place to do it like a lot of these ghost kitchens are at warehouses and nobody know like what's going on there it's just delivery and pickup but then you having a physical store being a butcher shop you can like invite different chef friends over to try different things with different cuts of meat and then just like see what clicks with people. And then like, you can literally have different chefs with from different cuisines coming in every week to try something new because you are the supplier of that raw material. I I think it's, it's brilliant. Execution might be a little difficult. (laughs) Yes. I mean, execution is always the most difficult place. It's it's always the most difficult. I would say actually Lung's point is more that in her mind, and I think this would be fairer to a lot of consumers, right? When she goes to Bennett's store, she thinks butcher. She doesn't think restaurant, right? And if you think as a butcher. I think uh, restaurant, but there's no. You think restaurant. But you want more seats. I just want to. No, I just need to see for myself. (laughs) (laughs) No, for no one else. (laughs) Permanency. But anyway, like we spend a lot of time on this uh, heritage meat stuff. And what we can't actually forget is that you didn't even 
this has all been a learning process from when you took over your father's business, mm. right? When he, when you, and you only had a month to get to grips with it. Mm. And, you know, you moved off that and your initial, your initial aim was actually just to continue his legacy. Mm. Right. Mm. And this is where you've ended up. Mm. Well, how did it feel when your initial aim was to like finish his legacy and not be able to even do that? You know, and then the guy, the guy old man actually told you, don't do it. And then you, you can't do it. I am still doing it in some small way, like in terms mm. of, okay. I'm still in the business, but doing something better. Mm. I'm improving on what he started, um, taking a different route. And I think um, he, if he were here today, I think it'd be Jimmy Brown. Because mm-hmm. he loved eat. He loved wild things too. So um, I'm sure he would be traveling with me going, oh my God, this animal, this, this is amazing. Mm. Like, he was that type of person. Um, so no, I got, I, don't, I got no regrets. I mean, if anything, I'm happy that I carved my own niche, my own path. Mm. Um, but still, you know, it's still building on the success that my father had in his day and what he left behind for me. So is it also fair... Mm like with the current status of the business that heritage breeze will be winding down at the end of the year yes okay so it seems that everything you did with the heritage meets right was based around education okay yes. so this hasn't quite worked mainly because of covid and other external factors i'm sure mm. how do you continue that educational journey now um probably not in hong kong i mean i think i'm done with hong kong um, I've gave it. I've given ten years of my life to try and make it work here. Um, I had no one to draw reference from. You know, it's all mm. for me trial and error in the beginning to how how I can how I can do this. And um, you know, I invest a lot of documentaries and photography and things like that to help educate. Well, initially chefs, and they're just a waste of time. Um, consumers, you know, they're they're, they're the future. Faith, you know, focus on consumers because they make the decisions. And they tell chefs what they want. Um, mm. So, you know, um, my journey continues in a different country. It's still in this realm. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, my, my goal is always to go to farming anyway. Where will you go? Where's the best uh, place to go for that then? Either, well, at this stage, either UK or, or Australia. And so I if you're going to go back into farming, are you going to be a farmer? Yeah. All right, so you're going to be one of those people that is farming all those heritage breeds, and then you're going to be. I mean, do they have trouble finding suppliers and, and people well, now, to sell now, to? Now, 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 I'm trying to. I'm starting to appreciate what I do because <laughs> a lot of farmers I work with, you know, I'm giving them what they should be paid for for their for their for their for the animals. I'm yeah. giving them a market and the way um, that's best for them. Yeah, and I've given them a lot of exposure. And um, basically, like, my, my first thing to, to, to farmers is like, okay, what do you need? How can I help you? Whatever it comes, that's how I'll take it. I'll, I'll find a way of celebrating here and educating people here with it. And, um, but I know it's not like that because usually as a farmer, whoever you sell it to will come, start coming to you and go, mate, it's too small, uh, not fatty enough, uh, <laughs> you know, too expensive or you know can just you know all that kind of bullshit so yeah just think of any bullshit reason 
I'm going. I'm thinking now. Like, I'm going to find one. Like, Fucking who am I going to sell it to? Like, what, what am I going to do? Yeah, exactly. That's but, my point, right? But no, but like you know, so there's pros and cons in each country. I mean, like Australia has the environment, the isolation. It's beautiful there, but they don't have the diversity in terms of what UK has in terms of livestock. Um, UK, I know a lot more people there. Um, I have connection to top chefs there. Um, and a lot of chefs buy direct from farms anyway. And there is already whole anim- a lot of places use whole animals since the beginning of time there. You know, it's not a new concept in the UK. Do you know what I mean? Um, and rare breeds is already on the on the rise there. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, Gordon Ramsay, check his, his, his thing. I mean, he, started, yeah. he started to put herbic sheep on the menu. Um, but the problem with that is that they're going to, the mission stars will fuck it, will find a way to fuck up the breed, <laughs> um, <laughs> the integrity of the breed, you know what I mean? So my, my goal here was like, I'm, I've got the opportunity to be one of the pioneers in it and to create the right kind of market for these breeds. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm. So you do know, you think it's like a timing thing then? Because like if the UK yeah. and other places are, are up, right? Um, do you think that your timing was slightly too early? Hong Kong, you mean? Like doing this area? Yeah, yeah, in Hong Kong, yeah. Um, definitely, yeah, way ahead of its time. Definitely way ahead of its time. But yeah. I think timing's more so like the COVID really. Um, had COVID not happened, I would still have enough wholesale business to, to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, so the problem is not the shop. The shop has been the best thing ever happened to me, to meet people like yourselves and have this opportunity. This kind of opportunity I would never have if I was working behind the scenes with chefs. Do you know what I mean? Oh, we would have so, found a way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, way too early. I'm actually gutted because, like, I've never been to your store and nor is Jacqueline. And, you know, I hope I can go to it before it does wind down and, some, you know, lock you in, in, in like, you know, mm-hmm. lock you down and be able to taste some of that meat. Because I feel a bit gutted that I haven't tried it, to be honest. Well, and the price, it. I'll be honest, isn't a problem. Like, I'd just pay, you know. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, I, I think you've got to give yourself a lot of credit, like yeah. what you've achieved. Um, you brush it off and uh, like in a way, like a water off a duck's back. But having, you know, let's just summarize this to the audience is you went into an industry you had little knowledge about with a very, um, and I mean this in the nicest way, naive uh, approach to the industry and a very honorable reason of doing so, which is continuing your father's legacy. And through that, you've gone on this journey. And through that journey as well, Bennett, I would surmise that you also found yourself, found your calling, found it, and you've also then refined it. And as I'm hearing your story, you're going further closer to the source of the chain, right? All throughout that initial passion of loving food mm. and some for somebody to persist in 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 such difficult times where everything is against you and you know uh heritage means is winding down your father's business wound down you know you've suffered two family bereavements along the way uh not to mention the difficulty of taking over the business and your existing father's clients um you know i I think a lot of listeners, if they have got this far, you know, would be extremely appreciative of what you do and mm. amazed that your personality is, you know, man, I think it's quite inspiring for a lot of people listening. 
that somebody you're an example of somebody that put their mind to it very simple reason just made the first move and then continued and just kept moving forward and i think uh, a lot of people would find inspiration in that yeah thank you thank you i mean um finding myself is very very important and you know when you start losing those that are dear to your life you you quickly realize how short life is and how nothing is granted and i've never taken any day as granted um i don't believe in what happens tomorrow i don't plan that far ahead i just keep doing it and um and especially um having found in my purpose in life is i love you know i think there's a great need to change the food culture and the plant that we live in um, i found a way a very important um the work that my farmers do uh, are so important um to the future of um the future of our world um and when you understand how short life is you know that's i haven't got time to really s- to sit down and and say oh my god i failed this if I, you just keep going you keep going um i i think i mentioned this to you i don't see the shop closing down as a failure what i mm. achieved in those two and a half years given the protests and covid um the change I, I i measure success with change the amount of change i've created in this home in the city is incredible people can't eat any other meats now you know what i mean like that type of stuff um kids uh children come to shop and speaking diversity they're, that, they're talking breeds now it's not beef it's not pork it's mangalita and riddle white or belter galloway or this you know what i mean like i've seen the change with my very own eyes and i'm very very happy with that and that means a lot to me and that's all i really care about mm. Do you think those life experiences actually have built your mantra about life? Because like yeah. one of my questions actually was, you know, you've got this David Goggins um, kind of mentality. And for those that don't know uh, David Goggins, right? Cause not everybody, he's basically the guy that keeps swearing all the time on all the motivational videos, <laughs> but what, what essentially is he's a hard man. Like he's a hard man. Like it's like pain does not go into him. And, you know, is, is, do you think that, life experience and your journey has molded you into such have such thick skin definitely when you like i said when you lose when you lose you know people that are very dear to you and thrown into you you can't i don't think i would ever find myself if i wasn't thrown in the deep end like i have yeah Yeah, i know what you mean when you're pushing the corner that you're forced to do incredible shit (laughs) yeah 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 because i told you right and Humans like, are slave to convenience, right? Man, nothing phases me now. Like, oh, man, <laughs> seriously, nothing phases me now. Um, nothing really. Like, I, I've been through so many different s- scenarios in life where, um, no, I'm just like, I'm so experienced. I mean, I had te- my staff walked out of me, you know? Right. And I'm like, what the hell do I do now? And, like, my first the opening team of the, the shop, Heritage Meats, they all pretty much work, walk, just walked out. And just left me and the chef behind. And like, that was like stressful. Like, what the hell do I do now? I'm like, you know, but I found a way. And um, no, uh, I think it's very, very important. I, I think Chester said it, it just builds character. Um, life isn't meant to be easy. So you, know, you got you to mm. put yourself through those challenges. And I think it's true. And I think maybe a lot of people hear, hear a lot of people say this. Fate is where you learn. Mm. You learn how to succeed, man. Like you just can't have good things happen to you, you know, <laughs> throughout your life. And, and then, you know, no. So I'm really excited, actually. You know, I think um, I, I had a good crack with Hong Kong. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I met a lot of amazing people that's given me a lot of amazing opportunities. Like you want to do the podcast. Uh, yeah. I've got a lot of people um, coming to the shop, um, you know, doing videos and magazine write-ups, whatever it is, uh, just to, and straight to the, to, the, to, the, to the fans or customers of HM. I mean, they're not, they're not customers anymore. They're like family. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. In my yeah. shop. You ever come to my shop? It's not yeah. like people come in and, have, and well, just Well, you should out. keep it open until I do get down there. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if you can, like, dry age uh, some of that shit, you know, because, like, if you have a cut that, you know, maybe you're closing down, can you just dry age that shit for, like, 28 days? Buy up all his jerky. <laughs> yeah, like, do something so I can and taste it. But we're happy to have you on the podcast. And I think primarily, you know, in some way, I feel great that we can support your mission right? Or offer, like, I know we're not probably a huge hand, but somehow get that message out there. So people do stop and think about it. That's, I think that's the first start. Um, so Daniel, yeah, it's been, you been great that's, to have you on. Sorry, sorry, that's a win for me. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. That's a win for me. If I can make you stop yeah. and just Google something, that's yeah, all I exactly. want. Yeah. It starts from there. Yeah. You know what I there. think will be shocking for a lot of people listening, that they will feel like the whole life um, all that fine dining, three Michelin stars, all that, they're going to feel really cheated. Man, I tell you what, well, yeah, that's a load of shit, man. Yeah. That, 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 that type of food is, um, it'll die. It'll die. I think it's dying out already. Um, well, it's funny, isn't it? There's a group of uh, consumers that only dine like that. Um, and, you know, it might look like that on our IGs, but... You know, literally, I, well, I can speak about Long Long because I've only eaten with her here. We we have the full range. Like we, like you know, non Michelin, you know, cheap stuff, you know, every the whole thing. Just because we love food, right? You can't really say like you love food and then just have the Michelin star stuff, right? Mm. I think you. For for me, it's always been like an. I want to see what it's about, you know minus the marketing is it really that much different you know is it really worth that much you know so but i think you need a full range just as you just like you know we do a watch podcast right you can't just bat around on the the high end you know maybe you also have an appreciation of the whole range of, of what's on offering so so yeah well i'll but, tell uh, you it certainly made me real um ask like what the hell have i been putting inside my body like Okay, that could I, have sounded very weird, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thanks, Dan. Like, of course. Um, but yeah, I also feel cheated in 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 ways. And yeah. I think the education part, and also if there's like something that I'm gonna start doing from now, is like asking about the source of my food. Yeah. You know, because I'm actually yeah. curious. Like yeah. well, if I were to go out, like just ask them, where where is this food come from? Like, what's the source? Yeah, you'd have to love it to see them try and bullshit it, though. Yeah, especially because you're um, you have Whole Foods there, right? If yeah, you go there. It's comical if you go to the meat section. It's marketed so well, so they actually name this brands where they have chicken and they name the chicken and say it's like the chicken's called Lucy, right? They'll be like, Lucy lived on this farm. Lucy had a good life and this whole story, but it's all marketing. That's what I find so comical. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I think, like, just quickly, because, like, there's a lot that, that um, there's a lot on the farming side, I think, that could be discussed in another time. But um, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. just in brevity, the questions that you need to ask is breed, age, okay. feed, and how they're managed to make the environment better. Um, it can never be just one single aspect, you know. You got to look at it. You look at food holistically. Um, some of my farmers organically certified, but I never promote green labels because it doesn't teach people anything in the, the day. Mm. Um, and with the way green labels are going, you know, <laughs> it's 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 again very standardized, commercialized production system. Um, so yeah, don't country doesn't matter. Um, local, local doesn't matter because <laughs> local is a thing, right? Local can still be industrial. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Mm. So why do I still need to support local if they're still spraying pesticides, uh, herbicides, and the monoculture and all that kind of stuff? Or um, fresh and frozen is not important. Okay, mm. farming practices is so. Um, ask about the breed, um, the age of what they process that, um, and then always you got to find out what the um, uh, how young they kill animals or process animals in industrialized systems. Um, so you have a benchmark, like chickens are 30 days, they process are 30 days. You know, my benchmark chickens 81 days. So that already gives you, you know, that's a more meaningful question to ask. You, see, you can see already, right? An animal that lived longer, um, takes slower to grow, has time to develop nutrition in its body and so forth. So the aging animal, when they're processed, the diet, so you know what animals should be eating and how they manage to make the, the environment positive, better. Um, these are the questions you should be asking. Yeah, and don't forget that all-important name. That's what I picked up from Long Long. Give a name. <laughs> <laughs> what, the like animal? Lucy. Yeah, like... <laughs> you know, the you funny know thing I mean? is, <laughs> I, get, I get all the names from my animals. I mean, that's how I get my thing. Um, right, yeah. So I do, I, do, I do say that to some of the customers. I said, oh, that's Smudge, or, you know... <laughs> Name like, it's funny, like because because <laughs> pre-COVID or uh, I travel every year to see my farmers. So, mm -hmm. um, but now I can't. You know, you get videos and whatnot of each animal that comes in and the history behind it. Um, oh my god, that's very very important for me. But but the idea that you're like FaceTiming this animal that's gonna arrive in your shop in two weeks dead. And it's just like, oh my god! Like I understand, like I I know it tastes good, but I mean, do you get used to that? I mean, if you were to be a farmer, like you literally raise these animals, right, in small quantities, and then you have to kill them, and then it's nature. It's a cycle of life. Yeah. You need to keep a you need to cull the population to maintain a, like a balanced population on your property on your land. And or sometimes in the in the case of females, you need to cull them to bring in new genetics if they're no longer productive. Everything's done for a farming reason. In nature, mate, you, animals get taken down by predators, right? Um, mm -hmm. So it, I, we look at it as a, we're very practical with with the reality of nature. And for me, when I see that, it's not like you know I want to get personal with it. I I really want to know. Um, for me, the history of the animal. Um, how the, what the animal is used for in that book, because every animal is different, um, the age of it. And for me, it's to respect it also. When I, when I put a face to something, when it comes to me, it's not just a piece of meat, but then I, I really pay attention 
or I feel more compelled to not waste anything from that animal. Mm. Um, but I mean, for consumers' purposes, obviously that's not necessary. But what is necessary for consumers to actually know what the animal looks like, a breed looks like, for example. Mm. Okay. So a lot of times when I was working in wholesale, hotels would say, "No, we can't put the picture of the animal, a middle white or a or a, or a shorthorn cattle. We can't because no one wants to look at animals." And I said, "Well, that's why they're not educated." Like, how can you not understand? How can you educate the diversity if you don't know what diversity looks like? Mm -hmm. And if you look at these, if you look at the heritage breeds, they're all strikingly different. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that's where I kind of like, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we have to round this up. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a roller coaster that one. I think there's probably so many questions that everybody's asking, but. Yeah. You know, first and foremost, thank you so much for sharing all of that, all of that knowledge and education with us, Bennett, and also your personal life, which I know uh, can is never easy, you know, to re-remember re and relive it uh, just on the behalf of the audience. So really, thank you for that. If you enjoyed the episode, follow us on the gram at The Waiting List Podcast, and you can find and support Bennett at Heritage Meets HK. And uh, yeah, please go and support this guy. <laughs> and, and you know instagram it, us to the meat <laughs> like you know put it out there do all that shit so thank you so much bennett no worries. thank you guys thank you so much okay see you guys on the next one Bye. All right, Bye. as always thank you for listening to the waiting list podcast we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have and if you have any questions comments or feedback feel free to reach out to us at the waiting list podcast on instagram or via our private accounts We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.